Coming Up is a podcast brought to you by the dedicated and diverse volunteers at 3CR. Just a quick message before you get there. For the month of June, we're asking listeners to donate to the station to help keep us going. In 2023, we're asking our community to stay tuned, stay radical. We rely on the generous donations of the community to survive. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate and show your support for community-owned and community-run media. Thanks for your support and happy listening. City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, City Limits, and here we are. It's the fourth, is it all right? It's the fourth, fifth yeah, Wednesday of the month, actually, isn't it? It's the 31st today. Tomorrow is the first day of winter. Yeah, that's right. Although this morning, riding across, it was a very pleasant autumnal morning, actually, coming across uh, through Edinburgh Gardens, and very, very pleasant indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, apart from the bloody Smith Street Hill, which I always complain about at Johnson Street, that's the <laughs> one that gets me. But anyway, apart from that, it's a good ride over. Um, and um, well, that, that little laugh was from <laughs> Zeb Peak. I'm Kevin Healy. Ke- Kelly Whitworth's coming in shortly. She's a, she, of course, panels for the pro- following program, Anarchist World This Week with Joe, but she's coming in as a guest this morning because she's done a report in collaboration with Melbourne University about, uh, about housing, and particularly the Bendigo Street occupation a few years ago where people might recall there was, uh, for some months, a number of homeless people occupied houses that had been bought for the East-West Link, which didn't go ahead, and they were in public hands and just lying there, and so they were occupied. And so she's written a great report about that history of that. So um, we'll talk to Kelly very shortly. And you've got a guest coming in as well, have you not? uh, Yes. In the second half of the program, we're going to have Colin McNaughton, who um, is a good friend from my Red Gum Days, and he's now working in another cooperative, the Smart Energy Cooperative, also part of Earthworker. Um, and we're going to have some some good chats about cooperatives, but also um, I'm hoping to talk a little bit about community building and uh, how we can keep our activist movements from burning out and, um, you know, sticking right. together. Well, both our interviews are pretty related there. I'm going to pour you a cup of tea. I presume you want one. Yes, please. Uh, while we're doing all that. And, uh, okay, and that's, uh, yeah, and Colin, of course, um, some years ago, and um, I'll hand it, thanks, hand it over to you, thanks. I'll, um, some years ago, Colin, of course, won a Walkley Award for a work he did here at 3CR. He did a, he did a series on the, um, on the um, maritime dispute, and uh, it won awards and mm-hmm. all that. And he, Colin also yep. presented here on 3CR for a, number, for a fair while yep. before moving, on, moving on to things like red gum, etc. <laughs> uh, so we're uh, good to see him. Great. It's great. Um, now... <clears throat> Today, uh, we'll, we'll go to Kelly very shortly, in fact, but um, she'll get her to come on into the studio. Uh, but there's been a couple of reports that, um, well, I think first we should rec- make the point that it's Reconciliation Week, of course, this week. Mm-hmm. Um, the Brecky Show this morning uh, paid tribute to it fairly well. But I thought, really, the biggest tributes, the biggest tributes to Reconciliation Week in the last week have come from Peter Dutton and... Uh, Scott Morrison and uh, their clan, um, all that mob, because they've 
what they've done, of course, is show us why we need a reconciliation week, which I think is pretty important that they have played their role. Yeah. And when Peter Dutton says we're going to re-racialise Australia if we vote yes for the voice, uh, uh, when were we not... When were we not racialised? Yes, when did we stop being racial um, uh, to be re-racialised? Can can you answer that one? Well, it's not in my memory, that's for sure. But you're not that old, though. That's true, that's true. They may be somewhere in there, but... Uh, I imagine it's not in your memory either, though. No, it's not. And you're, of sadly, course, ancient, so... Sadly, thank you. <laughs> sadly, it's not in my memory either, but thanks for the compliment. <laughs> the, <laughs> no worries. <laughs> um, but a couple of attacks on Australia, apart from um, the racism, which is so inherent, really, and uh, which is coming out very strongly in this uh, this debate, there was a good, mm. dis- good discussion about it last night, the... Um, the Point, the program on NIDS, the Indigenous television station, from last night and I think ongoing now is having is every week looking at it mm-hmm. in various ways. And last night was the first, and it was quite an interesting discussion about about uh, the, the yes vote and the no vote and, and all the, the factors that are coming into it. If anyone uh, can get back to rewatching it, it'd be worth having a look at. Um, <clears throat> but two things about Australia that have come up: the um, the United Nations, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, whose name is Alice Edwards, uh, said Australia and the United Kingdom were outliers in not setting time limits on immigration detention. And we've been, they've asked us to end our inhumane, indefinite detention of asylum seekers. And they go on about how awful it is what we do. And I think we don't need to stress to our listeners what we are doing to these people. But it's interesting now, but they've come out and said that Australia has to at least have a time limit of, um, you know, maybe three, six months at the outside of holding people before they're allowed to give them some sort of resolution to their situation. Um, and the second one is, um, while Penny Wong and co are running around the Pacific saying how we love our Pacific neighbours now, uh, they've come out and said, well, if you love us, stop polluting us, um, stop killing us, because if it gets past 1.5, uh, we sink that's what they're effectively saying, and they're saying that Australia needs to really beef up our our um, climate change policies, our attacks on climate change, and um, the climate action, the Pacific Island Climate Action Network said failure to halt warming to one and a half was an was an imminent threat to Pacific peoples. The climate crisis is not a future problem. And one and a half degrees is not an abstract goal. It is the bare minimum required to ensure the survival of our islands and our people. It is our lifeline, the network's regional coordinator, Laverton Lagi Saru said, and, and they get stuck into Australia for not doing nearly enough. So on two, those two fronts, we're coming under, uh, under attack and we certainly, as a, as a nation, need to do something about both those things. They're just two things we really need to work on. But, yeah. Um, we <clears> might already go to our break and um, organise to get Kelly on so we can well, have a good long chat. That's right, exactly. All right, here's a little bit of Tin Pan Orange to listen while we get set up. He can buy the love he needs Opens doors with all his keys Takes you where the people know Wearing like it's yours to 
Items you put into plastic bags can't be recycled. Try using a tub or container to collect your recycling to avoid plastic bags. When you correctly sort your recycling into your bin loose and not in a bag, it can be turned into things like planter boxes, park benches and tables. They might seem small, but your actions make a big impact. Find out more at sustainability.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Okay, back on City Limits, you heard um, Rich Man by Tin Pan Orange before. And now we have Kelly Whitworth and Mike Collins as well to talk about their report on housing, activism and local government, um, and in particular a case study on the Bendigo Street occupation. So welcome to you both. Thank, Thank you. you. Good morning. Yeah, and well, I thought we'd kick off. There's so many things to talk about in this report, and I want to congratulate you both on it. I think it's a great report. But um, but I thought 
quite simply, why don't you, one of one or other of you, tell us the background to it, how you came to it, what it's about, and, and again, um, essentially what you want to get out of it or what you got out of it as you see it. You happy for me to do a bit of a background, yeah, Mike? Yeah. Well, um, yeah, for those that aren't aware, um, there was a big housing occupation action in 2016 called Bendigo Street, which ran for over eight months in a number of inner Melbourne suburbs, predominantly Collingwood, but also Parkville, um, Clifton Hill. And, um, yeah, I was part of the Homeless Persons Union at the time, which was a grassroots lived experience um, advocacy organisation. And um, we got wind that there was a, a number of empty houses just sitting idle on this street in Collingwood called Bendigo Street, and some homeless women that had been staying there had been, after a couple of days, had been um, they were squatting. They were um, kicked out by the government or whoever, and um, they were aware that yeah, there was a number of empty houses on this street. They called it like a ghost street. So we decided to um, yeah do this action one morning. There was about thirty of us who rocked up in the dark. We started occupying one of these houses. We sent out press releases. We got on 3AW Talkback that morning and all of a sudden this thing like really kicked off and the police came down and Stephen Jolly, a Yarra councillor, came down and a, a, a very um, opaque real estate Can agent. Can I just interrupt here because yeah. what you didn't mention, I think we should, I'm sure most people are aware, but they were, they were vacant because they'd been acquired by the previous government because of the East-West link, which this government then didn't, didn't continue with and so they were suddenly there as houses owned by the public. Yeah, that's right. Um, and yeah, prior to us going there, Yarra Council had been advocating for these um, houses to be made into maybe emergency accommodation for people that were homeless or public housing, but we weren't aware of that when we rocked up. Um, yeah, and six months prior to our arrival, some of them were gifted to um, an organisation called Magpie Nest, which is a, um, a joint kind of group between um, Collingwood Football Club and Salvation Army <laughs> of all parties. And they, they're set up to provide housing for people that have been homeless. They were gifted some of them. And six months later, they were still empty. So that's one of the reasons why we went there, because we wanted to draw out what was going on, who was responsible, who owned these houses now, who was managing them, why the hell were they still empty when the homeless street count had just been conducted in the city of Melbourne and there was like 250 people just in the CBD sleeping rough. So, yeah, we went there one morning and we ended up staying there eight months. Amazing. Mm. And Mike, do you want to give a little bit of background as to your um, connection to the to the occupation? Yeah, well, um, I worked um, and still do in in local government, um, not in the, the local council, Yarra Council, but in, in a neighbouring council at the time, and uh, had been very aware and, and involved, I guess, in supportive activities and behind the scenes kind of advocacy around Bendigo Street. Um, uh, my council was called Moreland Council at the time, had passed a unanimous motion uh, supporting the Bendigo Street occupation. Um, and, but, uh, so I was um, aware and kind of supportive and connecting with, with the Homeless Persons Union at the time. But then a little bit later, um, there was an opportunity 
that came up through the Melbourne Social Equity Institute, which is part of Melbourne University. And they're an outfit who do really, really interesting work, and they're really about doing research that's uh, coming not from academia, but coming from the people, coming from the community. Mm. And uh, they presented an idea that me as a somebody working as a, in uh, public policy could join up with somebody working in the community to actually do some research in something that matters. And it just came to mind that, well, I think, and this is a couple of years later, I thought, well, Bendigo Street matters, and there's a risk that it gets forgotten. Mm. These things happen and people move on. And uh, um, I knew Kelly and asked Kelly, hey, what if we we actually do a piece of work? And what we wanted to do, because, you know, with research and with so much happened in Bendigo Street over eight months and and around it and so much from it, we needed to kind of, I guess, narrow down the scope of the research a bit. So what we looked at is the relationship between the activism that happened and the activists and local government and try to kind of understand the dynamics of that over the eight months. So that's what the research is primarily about. But also I think we try to tell a story and and give a little bit of a a simple history of actually what happened over those eight months because it hasn't really been well documented since it's happened. Mm. Mm. Well, well done on that, that score. But what do, what do you want to get out of it? I mean, what Where do you think, in terms of what we learn from Bendigo Street, where do we go from here in that sense? I think because um, we had a kind of two-pronged approach. Firstly, we wanted um, activists to understand what they need to know to be better advocates when it comes to grassroots activism. What are the barriers to um, getting what you want? What are the communication kind of flows that you need to understand? And um, and then on the other side, it was what can local councils do when they're policies are aligned or their values are aligned with the action that's actually occurring, which mm. I think they were in this case, um, what can they do to better understand, to better um, support activists on the ground? So that's the two kind of parallel lines that we went down. And yeah, our, our, our discussion in the paper and our, and our recommendations kind of um, feed into those two kind of prongs mm. and we can talk yeah, interesting about that can happen because yeah, I was the council spokesperson at Fitzroy during the freeway struggle in the 70s and um, you know we actually funded workers to work with the community we brought out a weekly or fortnightly maybe newspaper for the community you know we even at one stage blocked the road on Alexander Parade so it's now the shortest state highway in the country because the government took us took it off us um, but um, you know that was a case where well, it was Collingwood and Fitzroy in those days they were all part of Yarra now but um, you know the councils really led the community in many ways on that struggle and that, that can happen and it should happen you're right yeah. and that's one of our um, recommendations um, is called um, tell the story and counter the agendas and so what we're saying there is that as you say Kevin local government do have an in-house media team um, you know who disseminate information about what's mm. going on in the municipality and they alert citizens to issues that are occurring at a state or even national level um, and so these communications teams could, you know, inform grassroots actions. Uh, they could liaise with activists and draw on um, their information and networks to provide accurate reporting 
on events. Mm. And, and during the dispute, of course, the state's role was incredibly negative, wasn't it? Like it even said you're stopping people who need housing from getting housing when you've got homeless people and women fleeing violence, etc., all there anyway, and Indigenous people are living in these places. But they said, well, no, we need it for people who need housing. Well, they needed to tell some, they needed to create some narrative because what we were saying was really strong and they knew that. And so the Royal Commission into Family Violence had just been released. And so then they twisted their, they created this narrative to say, oh, well, actually now these rat bags are standing in the way of women and children fleeing family violence. And that just wasn't the case. We actually had people like that staying on Bendigo Street. And as I said, this, the houses were uh, empty for six months prior to us getting there. That was plenty of time for the magpie nest to house you know, people that were really vulnerable. Mm. And they weren't doing that. They were, in some of the houses, they were housing their actual actual employees. That's one of the most disgraceful things that um, yeah. came out of yeah, it I all. I picked that up. One of the things I noted in the report, I underlined that, you know, the Salvation Army had its own workers in some of the houses. That's right. Mm-hmm. And just to go on with the state's response, um, so the conclusion was that they didn't uh, end up um, turning those houses into public housing stock. Um, do you know what happened to them instead? Um, to the best of my knowledge from kind of researching, um, nearly all, if not all of them, were sold on the private market by and the state government. Can mm. I ask, it It seems strange to me that um, I, I don't fully understand why the state government um, wouldn't just turn them into public housing. It it doesn't really make sense to me why that would be such a hard thing for them to do. I, I think that's a that's a fair enough question okay. to ask. Right. That good, good it's, rhetorical question. It, it's a good okay. it's a it's a good rhetorical question. Um, I think we've seen a bit of progress in terms of state government action in relation to housing in recent years. I say a bit of progress. Um, there's a risk that progress is really stalling in terms of. Mm that commitment. Um, But what we do see across state government housing policy over time is a real disconnect between different parts of government, even within departments. So you can have different state entities owning, they own land, they own property, whatever, and they're uh, often told by the uh, policy, by, by the Department of Treasury and Finance, you've got to actually maximise the cash return on all your assets. And that flies in the face of the huge ongoing kind of need we have for, um, for social housing in this state and the opportunities on what is often very very valuable existing assets to actually turn them into yeah. community assets uh, for the people so yeah. it's uh plus they talk yeah. about they never they always talk about social and affordable housing but never public housing anymore yeah that well it's the the state government policy is is a reset in terms of you know, it's moving away from even even though the the director of housing still officially is is a landlord for um, sixty six thousand properties. The state government policy is eventually these all move out of the control of of, of the state, and that's mm. uh, so. 
No, no more public public housing yeah. or social housing. And of course, in the period, the, the Yarra Council passed a resolution, I think a five-part resolution, which was quite supportive. But one of the one of the five parts was that they arrange a meeting with the then housing minister Martin Foley, but he just simply refused to meet with people. Um, yeah, and uh, that was, um, and he wasn't the only one. But one point we make. I know we're focusing on the state government here, but one point we make from our research was that even at a local government level, even though Yarra Council had been at a policy level kind of supportive and had been advocating for the use of the houses um, for, um, for, for public housing, once the occupation started, by and large, they kind of backed away. And this is something we really wanted to point out, mm. that they, they exercised a whole lot of caution. And uh, Martin Foley didn't meet, um, you know, didn't want to meet the local member at the time. Richard Wynn didn't want to meet with activists. Um, and But also local councillors didn't um, take themselves from kind of Richmond Town Hall or whatever and mm. wander up to Collingwood and come and visit either. Mm. And that's part of the point we want to make about both officers and councils and councillors, um, the importance of actually going down and meeting people where they are and understanding what's going on. It's really crucial. Mm. You, you make the point also you, that local government should have a far greater role in housing. Um, but I wonder how in many ways, because I know, you know, in my experience as a councillor in Fitzroy, where during the period of great gentrification, we were trying to prevent that in some ways, but it was almost impossible to stop. Um, how can public, how can local government play a much stronger role in housing? Um, it's true that the, the, the setting is that that state government is the, the primary, has got the primary role in, in relation to housing and in relation to planning, even though local government officially, you know, does the planning of things it's the state government really really takes a lot of puts a lot of control on it the answer is that it must start from a position that local councils understand the needs of their community it starts from actually the need um, of what's needed in the community um, and then work from there it has its own assets but it has actually I think a lot of power, both as an advocator, as an advocate, as a facilitator, as a to being able to foster community action and different kinds of of housing models that that can be developed. I think there's a lot that can happen on the ground. We've seen s some success of that occasionally in local government in Australia, but we know from around the world that that there's um, a lot more can happen, but it has to be really about councils saying this is our community if the fact that so many of our in our community are either unhoused or in unaffordable housing and that future communities you know people who want to live here are going to have to move elsewhere we have to do something about it put it front and center and then then work at all these levels mm. yeah now somehow we are already running out of time, which I can't quite believe. And I think we need to get you both back on for a full show because there's still so much to talk about. Um, I suppose in the meantime, do you have any call out for what listeners can do? Is there a way that they can access your report um, online for free? 
Absolutely. It's located on um, the Melbourne Social Equity Institute uh, page, and it's called, Mike? Uh, Housing, Activism and Local Government, the Bendigo Street Occupation, a case study. Um, yeah, it should be pretty easy to find and, um, you know, we help people um, give, give it a read. It's only, you know, it's, it's an hour well, well spent, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just finish circulate up? circulate it amongst uh, <laughs> your networks in public places where people might find it of, of benefit to read at libraries or wherever else, you know, c- community book reading joints forever. It's worth noting you talk about a, um, a guidance the state government put out. Um, we'll finish up on this, but they said, and it's a very good comment, they say the process of working collaborative, collaboratively with and through groups of people affi- affiliated by geographic proximity, special interest or similar situations to address issues affecting the well-being of those people is a powerful vehicle for bringing about positive change that a community is invested in. It often involves partnerships and coalitions that help mobilise resources and influence systems, change relationships among partners and serve as a catalyst for changing policies, programs and practices, which is a great comment, but it's a pity they didn't practice it themselves. Yeah, we thought it was worth kind of reminding um, those that are interested that this is what the state government was saying was how we should be working. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right, well, look, it's a great report. People should read it, I agree. And um, and congratulations to both of you for doing it and for and let's hope something comes out of it and we can, in the, in the long run, it, uh, it can do something about housing people. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Thanks Kevin. Thanks, Kevin. Right, yeah. Thanks. Everybody's going to America Making sure all their dreams come true I'm not sure what my dreams are made of They're always changing They're always changing All my plans like ice cream bands in the summer Go by with hope still in my eyes Something's always pulling at my wrist now I try to forget it I try to forget it Am I young enough to be
to the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, screening the very best documentaries from South by Southwest, Sundance, Tribeca, as well as the best local Melbourne and Australian documentaries. Online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 30th of July. For more information, head to mdff.org.au and cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Hey everyone, this is Jen Cloer. I'm here at 3CR Radical Radio and it's just a little reminder that you might have forgotten to subscribe so why don't you do it now? Jump on the phone 9419 8377 or online at 3cr.org.au slash subscribe. Let's keep independent community radio alive. <laughs> okay, well, we're back online. And we're chatting. I think I went on a bit too early, but here we go. <laughs> We've got Colin McNaughton in the studio. Um, you heard another Tin Pan Orange song just before, Cities of Gold. Um, and you're listening to City Limits on 3CR. Hi, Colin. How are you going? Good morning, Zeb. Good morning, Kevin. Morning, Colt. How are you? Um, Colin, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Uh, Say what you, who you are, uh, I, I used what to you're work doing. At, I have a, a very uh, checkered history. I used to work at 3CR for quite a while and mm-hmm. worked doing a, a Stick Together program for four years. And uh, yeah, I don't know, sort of, what do you call it? A free range radical of some sort, I suppose you'd call it. Mm-hmm. You know, getting into the chicken pen and eating all the food. Yeah. So yeah. at the minute I'm work, doing stuff with Earthworker and Camp Eureka and a few other bods and sods. Yeah, that's interesting. What, well, it's going to divert here because it's not why you came in, but Camp Eureka, what's happening to it at the moment? Well, it's being, it's um, going through owns it? Where, Who actually owns it at the moment? Well, Camp Eureka, well, there's a trust. Are, yeah. And uh, it's been going for nearly seven years. So in terms of left organisations, it's one of the few things older and more long-going than 3CR. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. there's not many of that in Well, that it was list. originally the home of the Eureka Youth League. Of course, the Communist right Party, yeah, young that's folks. Right, that's right. And some of those young folks are now in their mid-80s. <laughs> well, they are. I mean, that's what I mean. I know lots of people who are in the... And in fact, if you... In that in that era, if people weren't in the Eureka Youth League, they weren't very good radicals. I mean, no. that was that was the point. It was young people. Yeah. So it's it's basically going through a transition where it's basically some younger folks, uh, us fifty year olds, uh, taking it over because the eighty year olds are having to move. On, you know, let yeah, it go. Should, don't knock the eighty year olds too much, people. Uh, I mean, be careful. No, no, they're great. They kept it going. So it's really in transition and it's trying to reimagine itself as to what it does in the community. But it's. It's, it's booked out nearly every weekend for years in advance. Mm. It's doing a lot of different things. So it supports a lot of different communities and, you know, in a very cheap and accessible way. Mm. And then there's also the working bees of the, the culture itself. Yeah. Now, a friend of, mine, friend of mine with a number of her lesbian friends go there and spend weekends and things. They have a regular sort of weekend. I think I know them. <laughs> yeah, well, you probably do. That's right. In fact, yeah. I'm sure yeah. I do because yeah. I'm yeah. there all the time as well. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so Colm, I sort of got you on on uh, the pretense of talking about cooperatives and talking about um, community buildings, and you did say, you know, reimagining how to exist in community. Um, So I guess 
A little bit more background on how I know you is that we worked at Red Gum together. Yep. Um, a which which was, a, yeah, what, which was. Yeah, it yeah. was. Seven a, years of workers' co-op or five years of workers' co-op and seven years in the making. Exactly. Um, a cooperative part of the Earth Worker Network. Um, and we had to wind down at the end of last year. You stayed on um, at Earth Worker in the Smart Energy Cooperative. Yep. Um, but, yeah, I thought we could maybe start about Considering Redgum's closure and how a lot of these activist things they have they have a limited uh, life lifetime, um, what we can how we can kind of view that as activists um, and what we should be making of our failures if you want to call them that. Okay, so I think I think I've got to give a bit of background to myself now, just in terms of because part of the reason why Red Gum, because I, I was involved in Earthworker when it set up in '98 originally, with Anthony, um, Amos, Cam Walker, Dave, Karen, and myself, we had a meeting and sort of mm. kicked off there in '98, and it went through its first morphing, then it was an alliance, and then Dave very much kept it alive for the next 15 or so years, trying to sort of get an alternative energy industry thing off the ground, and to a certain level, that certainly happened, but part of what I was doing was training martial arts. And a lot of the people who actually were set, helped set up Red Gum were actually ex-students of mine. And they explained to me that part of the reason they felt able and powerful enough was because of the work they are doing martial training with me. Because that was quite mm. intensive, etc. So there is a sort of deep link to all this anyway. Even though I wasn't there, I was sort of <laughs> present anyway. So, so you'd go into a house to clean it up, bash up the residents and then clean it. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly. But I think the, the martial... The thing is, this is, this is the point, is that... Um, I think when you have a common practice, and a lot of people in the left lose this, they just want to be involved in ideas and whatever. But when you have a common practice, and it's, even if it's, especially if it's cleaning toilets and doing things that aren't that pleasant, the common practice is really important. And, and a lot of the left will call that the dignity of work. And actually finding the dignity in that process of cleaning dunnies or whatever it is you're doing, rather than this thing about, oh, I've got these ideas, and we, if we agree on these ideas, everything will just be sweet, mate. Mm. Which is what a lot of the left has got into. And I think the old Communist Party, for all of its other Stalinist sins, let's say, mm. but is really good on that. Work together. And that's where that work beast thing comes in. But I think the same in, in, um, in uh, Red Gum. That working together is where the real transformations happen in terms of you, you, you're doing the work together. You might disagree. You might be a Trotskyist and I'm an anarchist and we're all very highfalutin about it. But when you're cleaning dunnies and you're cleaning the chinks off the dunnies, mm-hmm. <laughs> your, your theoretical differences mean less. <laughs> it doesn't really mean that much. It's like, and I think that's what's important is that common practice. And I think that's what the Camp Eureka and White So Long, 3CR, when you look at it really, there's, there's this work process underneath it and people aren't avoiding the work. And it's often understated, especially in left theory. A lot of people are like, oh, but I've got these great ideas from Deleuze or Marx or whatever. And it's like, well, whoopee do, because mm. how do you do it? And I think that's where, I think that's the real, and for seven years, um, Red Gum did maintain that. But I think partly also they were in an industry that was quite difficult in terms of the cleaning industry. So it's a service industry. It's actually, you know, part of the reason why certain unions are powerful is because you have a certain space and lots of people work in it and you can organise in that space. But when your space is shifting every hour or two because you're cleaning dunnies, mm. there is no common space. You're constantly on the road. You have no sort of, that, that thing of building solidarity, working together is quite difficult. You can't work in pairs. but And so this is part of the the very structure of the sort of cleaning industry and, and why it's so open to 
exploitation, mm. especially of brown people, women's work, etc. So it's 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 a difficult industry to succeed in, and you know, let's say pay you know reasonable or whatever wages because the the whole thing is always geared to the you know the sort of lowest common denominator in terms of prices. But that thing of working together. And that common practice, that's something, as I've gotten older and my hair's gotten greyer, it's something mm-hmm. I value more, unless your theoretical attributes, my own included, and I studied theory to PhD level, so I'm sort of mm. over it. But uh, that thing of finding ways to work together and building trust and relationships and, and, and community through working together and doing often shit jobs and not, you know, pissing and moaning and going, you know, but actually finding the sort of the power of that, that process. And remember, too, the, the most radical um, examples of, of unionism in Australia all were totally shit jobs. Coal miners, building workers. But we, mm. you know, now there may be some level, but they were on, you know, doing jackhammering for days on end and digging in shite and up to their knees well, in mud and I shit. I mean, the maritime, jobs. the maritime union was incredibly unsafe until the unions really yeah. made it much safer. But the building, we know, you know, how just it's just so dangerous and... Uh, they still come under attack for being unionised, but in fact, without the union, they'd still be getting killed and warm than they are. So the, so the beautiful jobs often, the, the unionism and the solidarity is a lot less often because the, the nature of the work. It's, you know, the work, you go to work and you come home and it's not that, you know, you didn't have to deal with knee, up to your knees in mud and shit and things flying about and things falling and dropping or, you know, dunnies, whatever. So those industries, people generally try and stay away from if they can. I mean, obviously now, you know, there's big money in, you know, mm. in, the, in the CBD areas of that industry, but in the sort of outer suburban areas, of course, it's, it's, it's open to all sorts of problems. Mm. So that thing of um, uh, finding a common practice and, and that being work and finding the dignity in that work and in the process of doing things together, actually finding your commonalities rather than spending your whole life sitting there thinking about mm. nitpicking over your little differences. So post-Red Gun, where are you? Uh, I'm working for ESEC now, which is doing uh, the uh, draft proofing and also putting up, um, what do you call it, uh, g- double glazing windows. or so. Mm-hmm. Still sort of in there and trying to create a culture. Is it a worker co-op? Yeah. Well, yeah. it's in the process of becoming one because it's quite a process to become a workers co-op. So it's in the process of becoming one. But trying to actually see if we can bring people in because it's not necessarily always an attractive because you've got to work. So a lot of people are like, oh, I want to do my radical politics and, you know, rant and rave. I did 20 years of that, so I'm not saying I didn't do it too. And I don't want to have to go to goddamn work and do it. But now as I'm getting older, I'm like, okay, maybe that is the sort of part of the way. Yeah. So... Yeah, and I think um, that's kind of like a, a demonstration of how we had red gum, it had its lifespan, um, but from red gum, new things are popping up. And we have ESEC, we have you going from red gum to ESEC. Um, yep. And also, yeah, connecting back to in the first half of the program, we were talking to Kelly Whitworth and Mike Collins about the Bendigo Street occupation. That also had its lifespan, but it was an incredibly important um pinpoint in the the housing activist map of Melbourne um, and Kelly and Mike have really done done the work to make sure that the learnings from that um, get disseminated and don't get lost um, and I think that's also a really important thing for all of our activist movements that we're we're going in maybe cycles but we're not going quite back to the the very start each time that we do that cycle. Yeah, what do you have to say about that? Well, well, I'm hoping that we can have a bit of a storytelling project 
uh, with Red, ex-members of Redgum uh, about how the process they went through. Mm. So those stories can be kept and sort of people can come back to them and, and listen to them and go, aha, that's how they did it. So they did an amazing job, but it became very... That because they just had to do the work to make it happen, it became very inward focused and it wasn't able to sort of keep a focus on the outside as what was going on and make those other links to, you know, make themselves stronger, et cetera. You know, internal feuds happen, this, that, the other. So, and this is normal. This is not just in co-ops this happens. This happens in small businesses all the time. Mm. So it's, it's not unusual. People get stressed. They're working hard and, you know, they crack the shits or do this or do that or something comes up. Or not, not unusual or unheard of. This is normal. But so, so we can actually learn from these processes to create a culture of uh, workers' co-ops, people having a say over their work. Because it's, it's actually, you know, it's relatively speaking, it's not that difficult but it's not something that people have prioritised because people, especially in the left, and, and as I'm sure you both know, the left is sort of getting so tiny and splintering into a the, the smallest shards you could ever imagine. Mm. I mean, and, uh, you know, where, where do we find the sort of solid basis for building community, creating alternatives, especially in the context of collapse, which is what I'm going to suggest that we're in right now, and it's the political unconscious of what we're doing. And people are all sort of... So busy they can't sort of sit still for five seconds to feel like unlike, what's unlike going on. Phoenix companies, we might be the Phoenix ourselves that well, arises from those ashes. <laughs> do you think? Well, I don't know. I, I, you know, but but certainly there's a whether on economic, political, war, climate change, or whatever front you want to look at. Mm. It's like, hmm. <laughs> but the area you're working in now is addressing climate change in some ways. You're talking about energy and yeah, you know, yeah. of course, of course. But uh, it's only a very small band aid on a huge oh, problem. Course. And of course, if Absolutely. you never if you never deal with the big multinationals, individuals doing their own little thing is going to do yeah. two parts bibbly squeak. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it's, saying Nothing. turn the lights out is going to make a hell of a difference, isn't it, to the, no. what goes on? But, and if you're but, giving $368 billion to the military-industrial complex just to sort of say yeah. thank you, uh, why isn't any of that going to actually creating a sustainable alternatives? Well, or we mentioned earlier that the, whatever they're called, the Confederation of Pacific Islands or whatever, they, they've come out and attacked Australia saying we have to do so much more if we're going to prevent them sinking. Well, we're, do, we're doing nothing, so... Right, that's right. So, but I mean, we, we, are coming un, we are coming under attack for the fact that we are. Well, you're right, we're doing... We're saying what we're doing and we're doing nothing about it. Yeah, and that's, of course, because of, you know, the billionaires' state capture. So they, they control the state and the Labor Party's sitting there quaking in their boots and will do nothing because they know that in 2014, Kevin Rudd got ousted by Gina Reinhart and her mates. And so the billionaires have just, you know, put the foot down and said, we do it this way or you're out. And they know they have a considerable sway. And whenever they move, whether it's Murdoch or Gina or Twiggy, when they move, you know, political forces get rocked really fast. So we're living in this sort of stasis. Well, just recently we've seen the the Treasury put up proposals for the the, um, new tax on the gas industry. Uh, there were three proposals, one of which would have raised, I think, something like $30 million, and they chose the one that, that raises about $4 million. $4 million? Uh, um, $4 billion, I'm oh, sorry. $4, $4 billion. Billion. That's um, chump chase still. That's right. It's still nothing. Uh, but, of course, it's one that the industry itself says that they're happy to live with, which is good yeah. of them, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I still think going back, I think that, you know, in terms of the context of what we're in, I mean, three billion uh, vertebrates died in the big bushfires and around 470 trillion invertebrates died mm. in those big bushfires. And it's really not being grieved or not being, you know, noted or it's just like, oh, yeah, 
Uh, and that's just like normal every day. And it's like, well, really? And then, of course, there was COVID and then now there's mm. floods. So you sort of like going, well, there's a level of sort of um, denial breakdown going on. But, you know, th this is huge. This is, you know, we talk a lot about because of the state of Israel and how it's pushed in the media about the Holocaust. And rightly so, it was a horrific thing. But there's been many Holocausts in the Americas, but especially the non-human Holocaust, we're just not talking about it. Mm. The, the, the warming of the seas. And it's like, it's just not even discussed. And you just sort of sit there and go, well, guess what happens? We're also part of nature. That's right. We're uh, warming the ourselves. seas, but also polluting it with plastic and all sorts of things so mm. simultaneously. And all the sonar mm. stuff and et cetera. So yeah. it's, it's a dire situation, uh, but I think that's where the community building and actually finding trust with each other in what we do is, is still, it's the only thing we can do. Because I don't think we can outkill them because that's not going to work. So we have to sort of figure out a way that we just have to, you know, be together and try yeah. and have, create communities that can respond creatively and, and, and healthily to bonkers situations. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit more about uh, those ideas about storytelling, music and getting uh, the together? Cu the cultural stuff. Well, for, for me, you know, because I've also been influenced by other traditions, being Buddhism, Catholicism, animism, uh, I feel that any culture, any sort of culture we are going to create, the left, I think it needs to take things like grieving, especially collective grieving, and... Um, uh, gratitude very seriously because I think that's part of you know this whole thing of the culture about having and just taking and, and not really giving back I think that's sort of at the root of course mm. we'll call it consumerism and it's just seen as normal now but of course it's only a, a recent invention this consumerism so if you aren't going to consume and be what you have then what other ways are there to exist in the world that aren't just about gobbling up the planet and each other and this is where the storytelling and culture comes in. So if you're not going to have more, then you have to be more. And this is where culture comes in, which is about mm. music and storytelling and actually these sort of processes. Now, it seems very simple. And, of course, we've commodified these things and we've got, oh, there's stars of them and you've got to be a, a great... Everyone can tell stories. Everyone can play instruments and sing songs. If you practice, you get better. <laughs> Everyone can. And if you're in a culture where this is sort of, you know, people start croaking and it's like, it's great, just keep croaking. And then soon enough, you'll be sounding like frogs at the, at the side of the river. Mm. It's great. But this, this is the thing that, you know, we're not really... Uh, as a culture, and this is the left too, we're not really facing that question of consumerism and the void that we, we sort of fill our lives with all these uh, and these egos with all these things we have, trying to sort of pretend that we're in control and we know what we're doing. We're actually, it's you know a bit of an illusion. It's, it's worth noting that every time they do, they say they're going to have some new great development, some new urban development that's going to be wonderful for everybody, it involves places where you have to go to spend money i mean none, none of them are ever places where you just go to go yeah um and to be with others yeah and there's always there's always some commercial aspect to it well this is it if you're going to create a culture that is alter truly alternative part of it has to be an ability to to well not just entertain ourselves but to be different people which, which is interesting enough what humans have done for the last 95 to 97 percent of time we've been on planet earth this is not news or great news big thing <laughs> it's only the last 250 years we've gone bonkers and taken a right turn or, 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 or i don't know some sort of turn so it's not like we don't know how to do it we do know how to do it and mm. zillions of cultures are still doing it or trying to do it of course they're getting hammered for doing it mm. but so we know how to do it but it's about relearning those ancient lessons and actually, you know, finding those places where, you know, storytelling becomes central again. 
because mm-hmm. that's what we. You know, what's the biggest story we live? We live the stories of the the big corporations. We're not living the stories of the land. We're not living the stories of the people we come from and their stories. We're, we're living these corporate, you know, swooshes and various things. We, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, that's one good thing about three CR is that that this is a place of storytelling, and this yeah. is a place where uh, people that don't usually get to get to tell their stories get a voice. So, exactly. Yeah. That's a plug for the Radiothon in two yes, weeks' time. Yes, we've got Radiothon coming up. Support the Radiothon. Stay yeah, tuned. Get ready. Yeah, keep 3CR independent. And keep the storytelling going. But uh, When you say uh, talking about storytelling in a broader level, how, how do we go about that? Well, that's part of my own interest too because I, you know, my, my background is Gaelic you know, from Ireland mm. and we have a tradition of that as we well. We Mike in here before. It was an Irish show this morning. Yeah. So if you're Irish, come into the parlour. And so that was, that was central to the sort of destruction, you know, British colonialism was the destruction of those storytelling traditions, what we call the feely, which was the poets and then later the bards because of what happened in the 16th, 17th century with um, Mr. Cromwell and his mates. So, and then later with the great hunger, again, the, the destruction of those stories is central so for us, the sto- reclaiming the stories and the storytelling traditions is actually central to sort of re- you know healing wounds of it, of trauma that have been passed on for centuries, but also about becoming who we really are instead of becoming who the colonizers told us to be and the languages we speak and how we should think and what we mm. should do. So the storytelling is central. It's not actually a peripheral. Oh, nice quaint little Paddy over here, pat him on the head. Uh, it's actually central because that's what actually bound the culture together. The relations to the land, each other, the cosmos was the stories. Keep we don't the, have that. Keep the Irish connection up in Galway Bay where the strangers came and tried to teach us their ways. They scorned us for being who we are. Well, exactly. So, so and blackfellas here in Australia have exactly the same argument in terms of we're also storytellers. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's what dreaming stories and songlines are all about and that's central to their culture. And you scratch around, I see the, Papu, the West Papua flag, I see the Palestinians up there. Exactly the same tr- is true as well in terms of stories are central. It, well, mm. They aren't big economies and running big military industrial complexes. They're actually really at root. They're, they're storytelling traditions. And that's something we've, all, all, we've put to the side and we've sort of marginalised. But, yeah, I think that that's one of the things I hope are hopeful about collapse in terms of I think the positives that can be drawn out of it. Imagination needs to be central. Mm. And if you want the imagination to be central, you need good storytellers and musicians Etc., to be able to make the imagination central because it's really only our abilities to imagine new possibilities of ways of relating and doing things that means we're going to be able to adapt. So, if we actually allow the imagination mm. to petrify, we will be <laughs> we will suffer the results of that. If you don't have a culture where you know, when you see you know 30 mm. or 300 black swans take off from a lake and you can't tell the story of what's happening and what's going on and why that's going down and, and who you are in relation to those black swans doing that then your imagination's pretty poor. If you're just going, oh, there's some, some birds, it's like, well, it's not just some birds, man. <laughs> so we, we hope that in the end it's the capitalist profiteers who are petrified. Wow, well, they'll be petrifying <laughs> us, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Making us into oil. We're out of time, Colin. Ah, bummer. Yep, yes we are. Um, but we'll catch you next week. Oh, Joe's just gesticulating, so we'd better go. Next week's transport, by the way. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio.